I'm Mark Lee Morrison, and from KAOS 89.3 Olympia and the Ruinous Media Network, this is a bonus episode of Low Profile. Today, my guest is Brooke Wentz, and we're talking about her new book, Transfigured New York, Interviews with Experimental Artists and Musicians, 1980-1990, available from Columbia University Press. Brooke shares my passion for getting inside the heads of folks creating curious music, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We'll also be hearing a couple of clips from her interviews with electronic music pioneer Morton Sabotnik and multi-hyphenate artist John Lurie. Brooke is joining me from a hotel south of the border. I'm actually in Mexico right now this week. Oh, wow. But I am going back to California over the weekend. So that's right. <laughs> and you live in the Bay Area? I do. I live in San Francisco. So that's my hometown, my home base. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've already read it, but for the listener, can you give me the pitch on your book? My book is a series of, or a compendium of 40 interviews with avant-garde composers and performers that were in New York City during the 1980s, whom I interviewed for a radio show or various radio shows. And um, we found these and uh, I thought they were of interest to readers due to the fact that many of them are very famous and have had a lot of influence, especially on young composers, so that they could, uh, younger composers and readers could, or anyone could understand sort of the thought process that went behind the creative process of these composers at that time. So the book is really very focused on being in the 1980s, 1980 to 1990. In New York specifically, In New York specifically, which also reflects sort of the, um, the, uh, the art scene at the time, which was very fluid, meaning there was an uptown, more academic scene with the Electronic Music Center and Lincoln Center, and yet there was a downtown scene on the Lower East Side and down in Soho with the Kitchen and Roulette and Experimental Intermedia Foundation and, uh, you know, A7 and Limelight, and, and then you had Brooklyn Academy of Music over in Brooklyn, and all those things are very fluid, meaning that the musicians and composers would play at all these various venues, and you had the ability to go from one to the other and then end up at a jazz club in the village uh, or on the Lower East Side and, and also hear music. So it was a very um, fluid time, and that's what contributed to a lot of these artists in the book. Actually, you know, they played with a lot of them. I mean, I kind of wanted to do a tree where you could see how each person sort of worked with another person and how they really intermixed. And, you know, like Bill T. Jones is in there, who's a dancer, but he worked with all those composers. And right. and uh, Andy Partridge is in there, and he's British, and it talks about them coming to the United States at that time, but they opened up with a Philip Glass piece. So there was a lot of overlap even though there are some Europeans in the book they just happen to be in New York when I interviewed them but there's a lot of overlap with those people and their influence and how the other composers were influencing them during that time 
But the scene or combination of those scenes were also very localized. One thing I picked up on, I believe it was your interview with Kronos Quartet, who were from the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were just asking them what's going on on the West Coast, because we don't really get any info about that over here. In these... Yes, then that's true, because we didn't. I mean, people ask me why Terry Riley's not in there. I've never met nor interviewed Terry Riley in my life. Mm. Um, I know Lamont really well. I know Steve Reich really well. And I know I know Phil. I mean, you know, I know of him. I, and he, I doubt he remembers me. But anyway, you know, I mean, I know a lot of those people. Um, but yes, some of that didn't transpire. There is like the Morton Subotnick interview talks about him um, performing at New Music America, which was a touring annual festival of new music. And although they had one in Philadelphia, they also had one in Washington, I mean, in um, LA. And he talks a lot about gearing up to do something for the Olympics actually in LA. So right. it was really interesting to know that Morton Sabotnik was preparing a piece of music for the Olympics. Yeah, I had um, never I heard mean, of that you one. Know, they mostly go for the Beyonce's of the world, but to get Mort Sabotnik to do it is like amazing. So, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of that. But the reason why is because like his music also really affects like and, and his wife, Joan LaBarbera's music, they really contributed to what was still going on in New York and the electronic music scene in San Francisco, the from the tape center there to what was happening at Columbia Princeton um, was very intertwined um, and, and mixed. And a lot of those composers uh, played the Horizon series at Lincoln Center and then also um, you know, um, played out in 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 uh, in, in uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles at the Schoenberg Center. So, you know, there's a lot of mixing. It's just that because these interviews were done when I was a radio host, uh, and I only printed the interviews that I actually had the audio for. Um, so there are many composers that I have interviewed numerous times, like Ellie Sharp and Christian Markley and. Someone asked me about another person the other day, and I said, well, I just don't have the audio interview, so I'm not going to surmise what they would have said at that time. Right. You don't have the record anymore. Right. I was wondering, because Christian Marclay's on the cover, and I kept expecting to find his interview in the book, and I read through it. I'm like, did I skip something? No, <laughs> <laughs> no you didn't. And Christian but... was on my show numerous times, and, and I would call him a, a friend, because we didn't know he was going to be on the cover, but when I when the the Columbia University Press put the 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 artwork together, they did a lovely, terrific job. And when they did so, um, I had to go back and ask him because it's actually taken from a photograph. So we did give photo credit to that, but Christian didn't care. He was like happy. And and there's a lot of talk like Zorn's. The people mentioned the most is John Zorn and Elliot Sharp and Christian Markley, and people talk about them all the time, but I don't have interviews with any of them, and I know all three of them very well. So Ardo Lindsay came up a lot, too, I, re I noticed. Yeah, Ardo did, too. Yeah. yeah. I tried to get him to get a quote, and I couldn't. He uh, He's living abroad. And Zorn doesn't want to contribute, either. I think Zorn gets hit up too much or something. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> Busy guy. He's got a lot of scronking Busy to do. Busy guy. That's right. <laughs> Um, I, you mentioned, you mentioned the Morton Subotnick interview, and um, one thing that I noticed 
in the recording, the audio version, I don't think it made it into the book, but uh, a theme that kept coming up with a lot of the new music, as they called it at the time, composers, the early electronic artists, um, just a lot of speculation on the roles computers would play and um, the future of electronic music. I, I picked up on a lot of like kind of fear of is it going to be too easy or is it going to be, you know, a little too mainstream? And I think uh, Subotnik in particular talking about um, just watching someone come up with these tones by twirling a few knobs when they would work for months just to get one sound out of a machine. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to play for the listener a little clip of that Morton Subotnik interview right here. Okay. What I believe is going to happen, and I, it did happen with the analog stuff, is that they will be very highly commercialized. And because technology, unlike writing a piece of music, um, is really requires the energies of many people, uh, individual engineers, but also manufacturers and capital investment and so forth, their involvement is going, to, is going to determine what you can do and what you will do with that equipment. Not everybody. I mean, there will be individuals. But I mean, look at the larger view. Rather than building a great piano that you can play list on, they're going to be producing an instrument which will be commercially viable and produce commercial kinds of ideas, commercial kinds of, of music. And so the majority of people who get involved with computer music, and I don't mean now the minority who are artists and composers, but I mean the large majority of people out there, are going to be thinking in terms of science fiction movies, and they're going to be uh, thinking in terms of commercial music, popular commercial attitudes toward it. And it will become like the old piano was, except much greater because cheaper and easier, more accessible. That's what happened with the analog equipment. The computer will just take it one step further. It'll be cheaper, and it'll be easier. You can press a button, and it'll play a tune for you. And I don't know why people have such wonderful experience playing one note and having a lot of notes come out. I mean, it seems to me they might as well turn the radio on, but they seem to really love to, um, to diddle with that, and that's, that's the direction that's going to go. I just think it's really interesting to hear from the people who, even back then, were kind of considered the old guard, but it was still called new music because they hadn't really been at it that long in the scope of no. things. No, but it was going out of the compositional norm, meaning it was using atonal, uh, working off of Harry Parch's, uh, you know, uh, program, and and then you know doing working with prepared pianos and uh, electronics. I what I fascinates me about the book, uh, even like David Behrman was working off of an Apple computer in the 70s, like literally when they were in their garage. But it is quite amazing how I did ask, it seems to me, maybe it didn't make it in the book or it isn't, it's not that apparent, but I did ask often to the composers, like, what do you think of computer music? <laughs> what do you think uh -huh. of computers, period? And they were like, well, they're okay. And like, you know, and then so today, you know, we can't even, you can't go on any stage without a computer or any sort of triggered 
instrument. Um, and yet then it was so new that it became a topic of conversation. I guess it would be sort of the similar today as if you said, well, how do you feel about AI? You know, mm -hmm. and like, are you making AI generated music? Well, were they making computer generated music at that time? You know, it's sort of, it's just a sign of the times, but I, I really get a kick out of that. And, uh, I kind of want David to go to the Apple, uh, you know, headquarters with me in, in New York and would, would talk to the youngins there and, and show them all that stuff because I think it would be quite fascinating to them. But um, anyway, I, I, I get a kick out of that. Yeah, that was definitely um, really putting things more, in perspective. More, more emblem, you know, is an emblem of that as well because he's, he's a true, 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 true composer of electronic music. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think another thing that's really cool to see there, there are a lot of folks that um, I was not familiar with. Um, and then a bunch of people who I've been, you know, curious about since I first started wanting to hear stuff that I didn't hear on the radio mainstream, you know, uh, and just seeing the interconnectivity between a lot of the stuff that like you were, is more punk rock adjacent and mm -hmm. and totally academic and i see that today you know like for instance uh david grubbs uh who worked in uh he was in the early hardcore scene in the midwest mm -hmm. and now he's uh you know a music professor at city university new york and he's gotten into that you know he wound up working with tony conrad and pauline oliveros and things like that Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know books like books like Transfigured New York make me just realize uh, the world is just getting smaller every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the lot of the composers in there, if they're not actively touring or or re writing, they they have taken professorial jobs at various universities. Mm. Um, and they're, you know, carrying the wand on, so it makes sense. You know, I was uh, really surprised to find an interview with Arthur Russell. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I was surprised too, by the way. Peter Gordon found that interview. I went to Peter to get a quote for the book, and he's like, oh my gosh, I have this interview with Arthur Russell. I was like, oh my God, did I really? I didn't even know I interviewed him. So uh, that was <laughs> a find for me. Thank you, Peter. Um, who who actually sent me literally in like 12 hours the mp3 for that interview and I was floored and I was so thrilled and then we had to find a photograph and the only photograph we had was that kind of grainy one but at least the photograph is of the times so all the photographs by the way are taken at the time uh, in those times in the 80s so that's why the pictures of the composers they look so young that's why right. a lot of the other things are, are taken from that time so um, that was quite a research project but um, yeah I mean yeah I really was thrilled because I had just read one of the books uh, by the British writer I forgot his name who, who wrote a book about Arthur Russell and what was going on in New York and what was great about reading that book was that it really brought up reminded me of some of the clubs and places and things that we used to go to and and hang out and visit and you know crazy stuff did you play 
his music on your program? Oh, yeah, we did. We had a few mm-hmm. of the recordings. I can't remember. I think Lovely Music had a, a record label that uh, had some of his uh, music. And um, on that, that, that interview was from a radio show where him and Peter came up and played um, music from their recording because I think Peter produced and was in part of uh, Arthur's group. So they had collaborated for quite some time. So that that whole radio show, which generally the shows are like an hour and a half long, um, mm-hmm. were, you know, was dedicated to the new music. Because most of the artists would come up, they're really there to promote two things, either a show or a new release. And so that's why they were there. Uh, I mean, and most of the interviews talk about that. There were some interviews, there's one with John Hassel and there's one with Don Cherry that I actually, um, didn't include because they were just so about the moment. Like right. John Hassel was talking about a show that he had, and so that's not too much of interest to the regular reader. It might be more interesting as just the audio. And Don Cherry, of course, was talking about you know his new release or something, and he just talks and talks. He's kind of a spacey guy, mm-hmm. and and so you know. But I didn't know those, even though both those lovely now deceased composers are. Are no longer with us it would have been interesting to have them but the interviews were too of the moment mm-hmm. to really add any value to the rest of the book so you know that's the thing and so i think in peter and arthur's case they were uh promoting their new recording and even peter talks about how he disdained i think cbs or something at that time yeah yeah he, yeah he's like wow he used a bad word that we can't say on the radio. Right, I, maybe, I caught maybe that. Maybe you can that... say it on podcast, but not on the radio. <laughs> well, this will be this will be on the radio <laughs> as well. But I, I know how to bleep things, so okay. Well, I'm not, okay. It's someone not, you can figure. You can just put two and two together. We're not live. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I, I I imagine that that was a challenge when weeding through just what's promotional be be there on thursday night <laughs> right exactly and that's what they were doing and then we would give away tickets and stuff mm-hmm. and it was you know i always i was always shocked because i come from the bay area where the radio stations really represented the music scene that was happening in the bay area and i moved to new york and when i did it was the antithesis you were hearing all this crappy like pop music and yet all around you was all this super great cool venues that were promoting i mean even danceteria had hipster bands like the bush tetras and you know i don't know some early like punky sort of the raincoats and the i don't know the european sort of vibe and then local people and punk rocky type stuff and you know and yet you couldn't hear any of that on the radio and right. I'm like, we're in New York City. What up? Like, this is a great big town. It doesn't mean that every pop station needs that. But when I got there, I felt that really these artists need to promote what's going on because you can't hear that in New York. So how did you get a gig playing such uh, outsider, such heady music <laughs> on the radio in New York? Um, when- well, I actually started school in Boston at Boston College. And I started doing radio there because... I met someone after Patti Smith's show, who was like my hero at the time, started talking to me on the tube of the Metro and just knew that I was sort of a big music head and said, wow, you've got so much knowledge about music, you should join the radio station. So I joined the station, I did a radio show there. Uh, it was really quite fun because I was from the West Coast and most of the kids going to that school are East Coast centric, so I kind of... 
I, you know, I learned about Todd Rundgren. I, had, I mean, I'd heard of him, but I never really knew about him. And Yorm Kukona, I didn't really know about him, but my college friends were talking about him. And yet I would turn them on to stuff too that they were, they were like, wow, you know, this is cool. So there was that sort of fun um, intermix. And then I changed colleges and um, I went to talk to the people at the radio station there, telling them I had a little experience, would like to know more about them. And uh, they were predominantly a jazz station, but uh, I got to meet a gentleman named Mark Abbott, and he started talking about a band called Tuxedo Moon, and I had been an avid um, uh, goer to Mabuhay Gardens in San Francisco, uh, and, and essentially a punk rock, hardcore sort of venue that I visited often as a high school student um, mm -hmm. and uh, would stand in the back while people would pogo in the front. But I saw people like Zeb and Robert Fripp there once. And um, and anyway, Tuxedo Moon was a local band. I was like, holy shit, you know about Tuxedo Moon. I can't believe that. They're like my homeboys. And mm -hmm. that's how it all started. They were like, yeah, you can play that late night. If you want to do the 1 to 5 a.m. shift, I'm like, okay, whatever. That's the catch. I'll do that. Yeah. So I'll do it. And it was great. I mean, I did have a biology class on Friday mornings at 8.30 that I barely made it to. And then that, of course, <laughs> changed my direction of my professional life. Sure. I was not going to become a doctor. But, um, you know, the 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 ability to play at 1 to 5 in the morning in New York City, where you have a city of 12 million people, was quite... A, it was a beautiful time of night. It was... There were a lot of people up. A lot of cab drivers, a lot of students, a lot of artists, a lot of people coming back. I would have friends that would drive down from Rhode Island or from Massachusetts, and they would drive down and listen to me pick it up around Westchester and hear hear me on the radio all the way till they stopped at Ferris Booth Hall on 116th. So I liked it, and honestly, a lot of these artists did come right at one o'clock, and they didn't mind hanging out until two in the morning. If it was going to promote their show, they didn't care. They were like all they were all for it. Right. And then a lot of the it's a lot of the interviews I taped ahead of time and then I aired them. And then eventually my radio show moved to afternoon music, which was from three till six in the afternoon. So did you change your format for that slot? No, it was, it was pretty much the same. Probably put it a few more interviews because a little easier to get people to come up to the station then. Right. But you're also. The one to five, I was the Caribbean show ended right before my show, and then right after me was the jazz, like jazz in the morning. Phil Schaap used to have a show, um, but the jazz DJ would come in at five in the morning and do like bird flight or do their early morning jazz thing. So I always there was always a into the Caribbean group used to always have fun people up there. They weren't smoking split, thank God, because that would have probably put me to sleep, but. The afternoon show was between like jazz and another jazz show, I think. And so it was a different, it was just a different group of people, but it was still interesting and beneficial and thrilling too. About how, how what percentage of your guests were smoking cigarettes in the studio back then? Oh, that's a question. Wow. I don't think too many. They couldn't smoke in the studio. They could smoke in the lounge area. Ah, uh, okay. And I don't think that, I mean, I'm not a smoker, uh, but I can't recall too many people needing 
to desperately smoke while they talk um, to Because a lot of them are vocalists or performers. Um, more Probably more jazz musicians smoke than, than the avant-garde crowd. I was thinking, John, I, I was just imagining John Lurie in the studio with you chain smoking uh, as he... he... We didn't do his, no, he, we didn't do his interview. His interview was done in his apartment. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's his Yeah. Job. And that one, honestly, my editor tried to cut, he tried to cut out a lot of the yucky, like, hardcore stuff that John was saying. And I said, no, you have to leave it in because John's a true curmudgeon and it needs to be heard as such. But yeah, he no, he he didn't smoke during that. He might have smoked at the beginning or maybe at the end. Mm. But you know, but there are not too many people I can say like I if I just like I know that most of the composers that I recall were not smokers too much. I thought it was cool to hear John Lurie talking about how he didn't really want to be recognized as an actor, but more as a serious musician and a visual artist. So you're, 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 your passion has always been film? No, no, no. My passion is actually more than music, but I always felt a little bit um, more sensitive about music. I think music is a pure art form than film. Uh, film is kind of more accessible. I mean, I, I, it's it's neither one nor the other, but I, I feel a little bit more deeply, at least emotionally, about music than I do about about movies, you know. Music's very hard to get across. I mean, you know, so you make an album, no matter how great it is, if people can't buy it, they can't hear it, I mean, then what's the point, you know? So, That's not true. That's huh, not true? No, I don't think so. Well... I mean, you're saying that you're saying that people buy according to how they can hear the music? No, no, no. I'm saying that the way the business works, that if you, you know, you make a great album and nobody ever hears it, what, you know, I, mean, I might as well just play to my apartment, you know. Oh, I see. In 1977, one of the things said that you were making performance pieces. What type of performance art pieces were you doing? No. Or was that, or was they just sort of... No, they were fairly, I don't know how to describe them. They were very, very weird things. I would use the saxophone, but that wasn't the main thing. I've been wanting to try and get him a copy of the book, but I'm having a hard time tracking him down, even though I know he's around. But yeah, he was uh, a character. That was really a promotional interview that was done uh, for the new Lounge Lizards recording. And so, I mean, I was thrilled to be able to go and meet him and in his environment. He had a lot of records there. He was a true, what it does come out in the interview is he really did enjoy going out to listen to music and he loved all different types of music, and he was like a sponge. Um, he was very known because of his physical appearance. He's very tall, lanky, um, you know, good-looking, quirky kind of guy, uh -huh. at least at that time. And he'd been in these Jim Jarmusch movies that were super hipster and black and white and all loved among the NYU film school crowd. So he was a very... Um, uh, uh, recognizable character walking down the street in New York City at the time. I honestly think if he walked down now, one wouldn't know who that was. But, um, well, like many people, honestly, so it's it's neither here nor there. But, um, you know, it was terrific to understand that he had a real love for music and for 
different types of music and he was actually knowledgeable about different types of music but he also played a lot at the public theater and the woman running the public theater Nancy um, would always like if you played there you would be able to kind of go and hang out for other shows and the public theater at that time had a lot of like Latin bands and a lot of guys from all different parts of New York that would go and perform um, uh, and and so and yet and yet what's the, the there was a guy that did his her husband Kip Hanrahan did a recording with uh, I can't and the name escapes me right now but I mean there was just a lot of um, well-known people of different walks of musical life jazz Latin percussion um, avant-garde pop rock that would perform in these sort of mixed groups at the public theater and I think John you know not only there but was able to go anywhere in town and hear music so he, he had a really nice wide palette of um, musical knowledge definitely mm -hmm. seems like a swell guy if not a little bit grouchy yeah yeah you know <laughs> I know. I think you come, it comes out. I mean, I love also the piece in the... There's an Anthony Bourdain documentary, and he's in that, where he serves Bourdain boiled eggs. It's quite funny. I'll have to um, look into that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh. did, you, did you have uh, many in-studio performers? Or did um, that happen at all? Well, we did a John Cage special, and... They had uh, Ned Sublet came and performed, and John came and performed. Uh, John went through our library and pulled records for his Roratorio, uh, you know, pieces. Um, it was hard to do setups there, um, even though there was a room right in front of us to do live sessions. But it would always take too much time, and since my show was from one until five, it was hard to. You'd need assistance right. to have people up there to do that, and I didn't really have that. Um, some of the jazz shows at the radio station had more live performances than we did. I'm trying to see, think of any other ones. I I really only remember the John Cage ones, and he did reciting of uh, poetry. Um, but the other ones, no, and especially new music is very particular. It's not like it's a rock band or it's right. not like acoustic. There's a lot of electronics and those electronics need to be tweaked and the sound levels need to be right. You don't want to have it get fuzzy going through the board. So it would probably be a little bit more difficult. I mean, they're probably, Christian Markley came up and spun records. That's true. Oh, yeah. He did that. Eric Bogosian came and did some of his like monologue stuff. But these oh, are more performance people, you know? Right. Uh, but I do remember Christian really bringing up his, like, literally bringing his turntables and setting them down and, like, scratching and doing his thing right there in the studio. Yeah. He's, um, he's four of them most of the time? Yeah, or... I think at that time it was probably only two, because he could probably only carry two at the time. Uh -huh. You know, it's funny now I mentioned Christian Markley and people barely know him. Well, they don't barely know him, but they know him as a visual artist in the visual world more uh, perhaps they, they know, but he does really harken back and really, he still works in the, you know, music and, and does he? performs oh. and stuff. I mean, occasionally I think, yes, oh. but his, his focus is really on his visual arts though now sure. mm -hmm. or media arts, I would say multimedia arts. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I need to catch up with some of these folks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mostly familiar with the classics, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, you couldn't get someone like Glenn Bronco to come up and do anything. He was a huge smoker. <laughs> that, speaking sure. of smoking, he yeah. was the biggest smoker. He was nonstop. And he just smelt like a bunch of smoke. Mm. I believe that. So. Yeah. Yeah, you need a <laughs> really big studio for one of his pieces. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Very much so. Living Color was a group I didn't expect to. I, I wouldn't think necessarily fits the, um, what do you call it, the format exactly. But then I, I was surprised to kind of Well, there was a group. Why. There was a group. The thing is, is that there was also during the 80s, there was a big push. Um, or there wasn't a big push, but there was an upsurgence of black performers that were more rock and roll and and fringy jazz. And most people think black artist is jazz, but it wasn't that. And so the Black Rock Coalition was founded and Vernon was very much a part of its beginning along with Greg Tate and a few other people, Bill Tolls. And I was a listener of a lot of that music because I would go to the clubs and there would be these bands playing and they were great. Mm-hmm. I and I, um, this is even before Living Color, uh, Michael Hill's Blues Band, uh, there was a ton of different ones. John Paul Borelli's Blue Wave Bandits, Calvin Bell's Calvinator, um, there was a ton of rock band. They were also all playing at the Knitting Factory. So they would play the Knitting Factory and Arthur Russell might be after. Arthur might be opening right. up for one of them. And that's how you got to know these people. And there were a lot at the, the Knitting Factory on Houston Street. And so the Black Rock Coalition was a really instrumental part during that time. And the thing was is that Vernon played in a lot of avant-garde groups. I mean, he played with... I, you know, I, I can't name them off, but he and um, he played with Ronald Shan Jackson. He played with a lot more of these fringy jazz groups, but also with, you know, white experimental groups as well because they liked his guitar sound. And so when he started Living Color a little bit later, they had this this whole it was really most of their story was how difficult it was for a black rock band to get signed to a record label we don't think about that now because really color is almost no uh, barrier anymore um, to to getting a record deal but at those times they even had their record their record their first record was produced by Mitt Jagger so it, it even took that in order to get a record deal by a major label for them to even put out a single. And, you know, some of the guys in band were working at Tower Records at the time. And so all the sort of new music people were also supporting what the Black Rock Coalition was doing because it was also great new music and experimental and sort of fringy music too, just with a little bit more of a backbeat to it. Right. And, and once again, there was this mix and mingling of people working together and playing together. And so... Even though it seems a little out of place, it wasn't really because at that time that was a big part of what was going on in New York City was a Black Rock Coalition. That's really cool. I, mm. Yeah, it's some good perspective. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, now now all of them are really well respected. I remember going to a show, maybe it was like ten or fifteen years ago, at um, Irving Place, and they played their their record. 
from beginning to end and it was totally filled with you know mostly males i have to say and mm -hmm. a lot of white males at that too but they got a lot of respect and that place was packed because they did they did that record was awesome and they also broke barriers for future bands so you know that's true i'm trying to think of that bad brains you know mm -hmm. they were like their buddies and that was out in la and they're you know it was just they had to kind of do something because the industry was so one-sided should i say absolutely yeah mm -hmm. still coming around the ones that are run by people who are out of touch anyway <laughs> <laughs> but um I wondered uh, when you realized that you had a book. Did you think about this back in the moment at all? Not at all. I pulled these tapes out and I thought, um, I need to do something with these. Meaning like I have to get them out of a cassette and onto some sort of digital format or they're just going to end up melting down in my basement. So I um, thought I would get them transcribed mostly for my daughter so that she could know what her mom did in a past life because mm -hmm. actually a lot of my colleagues you know i'm a music supervisor by trade and and most of my colleagues and people that i work with don't even know this part about my life um so sure. it's a it's a whole different aspect of my life and so i started like that and then i went to a um a friend uh who is actually a publisher and she worked at the radio station when i was there and uh, she turned me on to an editor because I didn't even want to read them because it was just too close to home. So I got an editor. The editor said, you know, there's a lot of interest in the 80s. You might try to find a publisher. So I looked to find a publisher um, and, uh, and landed one. So there you go. That's great. So, so you're a music supervisor for radio now? No, I'm a music supervisor for film and TV shows. Ah, okay. I do mostly documentaries, so. <laughs> this is such a really concise snapshot of a decade. And then mm -hmm. does that mark the end of this project that you were doing, your show? Oh, that's... Yeah, I mean, that the show ended in 88. Um, I did some work for NPR and for uh, WMYC, um, and I continued writing and getting some articles published um, in various music magazines. Um, I moved over into uh, producing albums of world music, which is sort of my specialty. These days, um, so I did not pursue a professional um, radio career. Sure. Um, because I actually had other interests. Even though I did enjoy radio a lot, I didn't want to go down the path of um, of being, you know, going from various city to city to be a hired voice. Right. Um, my voice is nice, great, but I don't want to do that <laughs> all the time. So I had more interest. I'm actually more interested in the creative process. Like I love learning about the creative process and how it's done and what influences people. And I love turning on young people to what is kind of, you know, showing them history of stuff. It's like, it's just like modern art. You can't go look at a Mark, Mark Rothko painting and say, oh, I love this. And Laura, they, they just go, what is this? And you have to understand where it's coming from. And similarly, you can't listen to Glenn Branca's music and say, you just say, oh, this is noise. But no, you have to understand where he's 
coming from and the tonalities and the influence of people like Lamont on him and, and other people who, you, know, you have to understand that before you actually jump into a Glenn Branca record. Right, yeah. It's, a, it's another universe, sonically. <laughs> and unfortunately, you can't jump into a Glenn Branca performance. But, I mean, maybe he scored this. It would be awesome if some somebody somewhere decided to put on one of his pieces again. It would be very interesting. I but had half some of buddies. his show was, you know. I had some buddies that performed uh, with uh, one of his pieces about, I want to say maybe... 12 years ago something like be. that up in Seattle yeah. they uh, they were just it was an open call if you know how to read music and can play guitar yeah and they they made it really that's awesome it was sold out too I wasn't I wasn't able to get in but I don't read music so I probably it's could okay. have faked it <laughs> <laughs> um, if you'd like would you like mm-hmm. to share uh, something from one of your favorite albums that you've produced? Well, it's hard to say because a lot of the albums that I produced were compilations. Um, I did produce an African band called Lego de Coteba, and we did a uh, African version of I Can't Go For That No Can Do by Hall & Oates, which would be kind of fun Stop. to hear. So yeah, you can pull that one out I and play to. that. All right. And that was produced by Bruce Sweden. He produced a whole record. And Bruce, uh, if you don't know, was the engineer for Quincy Jones for our, like 20 years and produced all of Michael Jackson's early recordings. So it was such a treat to work with such a high-level engineer, producer, to do this recording of Lego uh, who were all the way over from the Ivory Coast, and we recorded it in Connecticut. It was such a thrill. And yes, he enjoyed so much doing that song. Um, so it was really, really lovely. And that's the one I would say uh, you can play for your audience. Brooke, thank you for joining me on a special bonus episode of Low Profile. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Low Profile. We just heard Brooke Wentz on her book, Transfigured New York. It's available now from Columbia University Press. And if you go to this episode's website at lowprofilepodcast.com, you can find more information. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Somebody could you this is so no matter
Je te dis non, aujourd'hui je fais ce que je veux. Ah. 